stairs. I like a billion pair of eyes that couldn't size me up and see me closely. Ain't got no friends on Facebook, homie. Look, you barely know me in finite moments. Timeline posting slides. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Look at y'all. Thank you. Oh, such a great round of applause. All this for me? Well, it should be. It's my birthday. Huh? Huh? That's right. Welcome to The Whole Hard Truth. I am Orin Lamena. Let me get all my The Whole Hard Truth is brought to you by is out of the way. The Whole Hard Truth is brought to you by the DNVR Podcast Network. Search the DNVR Search The Whole Hard Truth wherever you get your podcasts on all platforms. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Okay, we got the business out of the way. These editions are, and I say these because there'll be two of them that I um, produce and, and give to you this week. These ones are special to me. I wouldn't do anything less on my birthday than introduce you to the people that made me who I am. Two of them anyway. So... Many of you may know, and if you don't know, you're going to find out. I come from a long line of people who get behind television cameras and microphones and tell you what's what. And I am honored to, to give you these two episodes this week on The Whole Hard Truth. My birthday week, December 29th, one of the greatest days in the history of the world. And uh, it will remain as such until I'm up off this bitch. Joanne Reed, um, my sister, Lamangelo, many of you may know, is a fixture in the world of political punditry and commentary. She hosts the readout on MSNBC, um, AM Joy before that on weekends, uh, the Reed Report before that. She has worked her ass off, busted her butt to get to where she is, and she is along with my sister June, my June Moon, they are, I mean, they're my idols. They have achieved things that I aspire and work hard to, to get to. And we've been a little triumvirate of uh, independent success, uh, post-tragedy. Uh, I'll throw that in there just because we all share the same story. Anyway, my sister Lamangelo is going to be this, this episode she is a murderer, <laughs> not in the literal sense, but in that metaphoric sense of just seeing what you want and chasing it until you have it in your clutches and never letting go. Similar to a lion on the Serengeti plane. No, she has impressed and dazzled the world of political punditry because of her intellect her tenacity, her sense of humor. She's my Lamangelo. So, without further ado, I give you the whole hard truth about working your ass off with Joy Amory. So, away we go. Hi, Lamangelo. Hello, Arangelo. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing well. This is so awesome because I got one. I got a chance to do the same thing with June. And it's like, I mean, I tell you guys all this, all this all the time in private, but you know, I don't have two bigger heroes in my life. And so it's like to be able to sit and talk with you guys about 
who you are, how you got to where you are, um, and have it be in this setting sort of professional is tight. It's not just like, you know, in a conversation that we have between ourselves. By the way, on this podcast, The Whole Hard Truth, if you should slip with uh, a ep- uh, curse word or, or two, it's not a problem. We're an adult. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> so I guess where I wanted to start, because for people that don't know, and there's few that don't, um, before we get to who and what you are professionally, I thought it would be interesting to talk about just a little bit of our growing up and how you see, you know, the household that we came up in, the role that you played in that house as playing out now in your professional life. Because, I mean, as I remember it, you were always the storyteller. Uh, A huge, you know, even in your teen years, a huge follower of all things political. I remember you crying over the assassination of um, of JFK, and it's just like, have you ever stopped down to think about just how well-suited you have always been for what it is that you do now by virtue of the, the kid that you were growing up? You know, it's interesting because I, I do think about that, and I've done a lot of interviews, you know, talking about kind of what got me interested in news and politics and you know, what I talk about is that I've always been fascinated by, um, not just by the news, but I don't know if it's just ir- an irony based on my name, but like the dark history of the world. <laughs> like, like I just, I just have, a, I'm just kind of drawn to it for some reason. And I got really drawn to like the Iran hostage crisis when I was in like, it had to be like fifth or sixth grade, fascinated by the idea that all these people were taken hostage. And that's really how I started watching Nightline because mom mm-hmm. was like, you can watch it once. So go ahead. You can watch this show that was really a countdown show about the um, about the, the hostage taking, and it was right after the news, and I used to like to sit up with mom and watch the news. So I'm watching it, and then this thing comes on at like 1135, and I really should have been in bed. She was like, okay, you can watch it once. And the next night I was like, can I watch it again? She was like, okay, fine. You can watch it one more time. And I ended up watching it every night until I graduated high school. <laughs> you know, I watched it every night. And that show, you know, Ted Koppel, was like my introduction to, you know, other interesting topics like, you know, the Palestinians crisis, you know, that show Nightline is the reason I'm so interested in it. I've never been there, never set foot in the Holy Land, but I am have always been really empathetic toward what the Palestinians have been facing, um, you know, uh, you know, even knowing about South Africa, you know, uh, apart from our father uh, who I was the one who had to take his calls when he when he when he would call. And you may recall you were a baby, but I was the only one who would really sit on the phone with him. And so he was another person that got me interested in like the world because you know we had nothing personal to talk about because he really wasn't a father. So we would talk mm-hmm. about other stuff and we would talk about South Africa. So I knew like a lot about South Africa as a kid because that's where he worked. So he would talk about apartheid and what it was like to work a black person in South Africa and all the sort of adventures that he had, like the time he wanted to run for office and then had to like run, you know, to the embassy and hide this Canadian business partner of his because they were like shooting at him and stuff, like all these crazy things that were happening to this guy, you know? So I think between watching the news, watching the Sunday shows, you know, watching documentaries about the JFK assassination or about, you know, the Nazis and all this. I was just into that stuff, you know? And I think it's probably, maybe it's like a dark part of my character. <laughs> I'm just it's what I'm drawn to. Like to. The creepy stuff. 
Yeah, because I mean, it was either that or like ghost stories, haunted stuff, aliens. <laughs> like I think about it, sometimes I was like, "What was I weird?" <laughs> I was really well, it's, weird. It's, it's crazy too, because you're like, you've always been like this storyteller. I remember when we were in Mexico. Remember the drama that you made? We had that book, and the book was basically it really covered Greek mythology. And so it had all yeah. the Greek gods in it. And remember you turned that, do you remember turning that into like a real life? Cause we, I mean, during the summers, you and June would be watching um, all my children and all that other stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, or, or general yeah. hospital. Um, and it was like, you ended up turning these characters from Greek mythology into this, <laughs> into this soap opera and I was like yeah. I mean, we would we would sit fascinated by it like you, you'd sit and you'd have all of us even when the cousins came out you'd have us all captured with story time and it's just crazy because you know a lot of people you can you can look in your childhood and see your your future um as a professional in a lot of your childhood interests but it's just it is kind of eerie how how well suited I think you are for what you're doing just by virtue of who you were as a kid. And it was pretty weird because I don't think that that was, that wasn't common fare coming from Aunt Bella for, no. you know what I mean? For a teenage girl to be like that. No, it's true. And I did love telling stories. It was, and it was great that I did have a captive audience. Cause I don't know if you and June like were to listen to it or you guys like listen to it, but right. I could tell these stories and it just was fun making up new episodes, right. And finding new fascinating things for these characters to do. And that, you know, they were kind of drawn from some real mythologies and mixed with, you know, my insanity, but it was fun. And, and, and look, it was also, it was something for us to do besides watch TV because we were also home alone a lot, right? Because our right. You know, mom worked a lot of jobs. You know, at one point she had three jobs. And so she would go from, you know, her teaching job to that job at the nutrition place. And, you know, I blame all this on Ronald Reagan, honestly, because, you know, mom had this great federal job where she was a nutritionist with this federal agency uh, Reagan's first budget slashes the federal government, including her okay. job. And so she had to improvise and figure out new stuff to do and, you know, ultimately got her PhD so she could go into teaching, being a professor. But, you know, we had to kind of improvise financially as kids. And so, you know, being able to entertain ourselves between the TV and telling stories. And remember, we would also do like dramas in the backyard where Mm -hmm. uh, one time we actually set a fire <laughs> because we, tried to <laughs> we do... almost lit the whole the whole shed on fire. <laughs> the whole shed on fire because we had like like well one thing about the Lamina kids we were like really creative with our, our like play we didn't just go play outside we were like we're gonna do a whole drama where then we there's a, a small fire that we're like oh we just almost set the shed on fire this is joy good <laughs> that was during that was during the famed blizzard of eighty two and it was. It was hella snowed in in the backyard, and we trudged through the backyard like discoverers, and we and we acted as if we found. I remember this profoundly. We acted like we found the shed, like it was you know some oasis in the middle of this frozen tundra, and then thought right. it was smart to, to pour a bunch of lighter fluid in the bottom of that round barbecue pit, and then yeah, and it just went up. Strike a bed. It went up like, now that's a fire. <laughs> and we're like, and then the best thing about it was the cover-up, right? It's always the yeah. cover-up is worse than the crime. We'll just lean all this other stuff that was in the shed against it, and Mom will never see the blackened side of the shed. And eventually she had to, like, do stuff in there. She was like, June Joy Orin! Because, you know, our name is June Joy Orin. June Joy that's Orin! <laughs> and so, you know, we knew we were in trouble when all the names got you together. And we were like, uh, who set this fire? Uh, oh, oh, none of you. Remember, she would say, "Oh, you're each other's lawyer, huh? You're each other's right. lawyer." <laughs> Every 
when he was a lawyer. <laughs> we always covered up. We always covered up well for each other. There wasn't a lot of telling on each other coming up. No. Well, there wasn't a lot of telling, except I have to say the weakest link in the non-telling was Oh, was here we you. go. <laughs> <laughs> because if we really got it, the only time that you would tell on us is when June and I would get into a fight. And then you would not only tell, you would call mom at work and tell on it, us. All the way I'm, in Greeley. All the way in Greeley, Colorado. And then we and she was like, if I have to come all the way home, everyone's getting beaten. <laughs> everyone. All three of them. <laughs> you guys used to go at it, yo. It was so crazy because, again, you know, fiery personalities, you know what I mean, with Moon doing what she's doing. And she's very outspoken on her platform and, you know what I mean, killing it in the Hollywood game. And you're at where you're at. You guys, I mean, those two personalities underneath the same roof, sometimes it was like Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. You guys used to <laughs> go at it. And all yeah. I could do, all I could do is, as the younger brother is, you know, try to be the voice of reason, which never worked because it was like, shut up. <laughs> no, and then you would call us like, you're just a bunch of big pieces of cheese. I, that was my favorite insult ever, the orange right. insult of like, you're big pieces of cheese. And we were like, what does on, that even mean? <laughs> right, right. It was enough to stop the fight for a second, so both of you would quickly look over like, what? <laughs> what, what does, does that, that mean? mean? What does that mean? <laughs> go away. <laughs> okay, let's, let's, no, but, let's mm-hmm. go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, like, leading it up and into Montbello High School, because, you know, I mean, June was in the first class to go there. Um, you followed shortly behind her, and you guys both killed it on the high school level. And I know that being an intellectual, like, what was – having a different set of interests, especially in that part of the 80s? What was having a different set of interests that probably most of your peers like for you, you know what I mean, in high school as a teen? It was interesting because so I had the combination um, as a kid of being both a sporty kid and a nerdy mm-hmm. kid at the same mm-hmm. time, right? So the sportiness and my ability to, like, play basketball and play Foursquare, an ancient game that not, the modern uh, young person will not remember, um, you know, playing run track. Kick, run track, playing kickball. The fact that I was athletic mitigated the fact that I also had Coke bottle glasses and was a complete <laughs> nerd and didn't know how to do my hair, right? So I was a hot mess, <laughs> you know, of a, of a kid, like, you know, that people would want to make fun of, but I also had athletic ability. So people would want to pick me last because I was a nerd, but then they would pick me and then I would make them win. And then the next time around, they would want to pick me first, right? Right. And the boys would want to play with me because I played like a boy. Like I actually was a boy in a lot of ways. It's not (laughs) clear I was that much of a girl because I hated wearing a dress. I used to wear I used to put shorts on under my skirt because I didn't want to wear a dress to church, and my rebellion was to put shorts on under it so I didn't have to dress like a girl. You know, I wanted to play baseball. I used to ask mom every Christmas, I wanted a Louisville slugger, and she would get me like a volleyball set or a badminton set. I was like, I hate right. it. Or, or like a Barbie that I would then like make it like fight. <laughs> I would fight my Barbies, you know, because I didn't want to do that. I wanted to like play sports. I wanted to be a baseball player. And it was like, you know, that sportiness actually helped me navigate school because I was super nerdy. I really actually did like doing my homework. I was interested in learning the math. Like, I actually wanted to do the science experiment. Like, I really was interested in almost everything. Anything that involved learning something, I was into it. 
You know, I mean, look, I read War and Peace in high school, and I actually did it as kind of an asshole move because people were making fun of me for being nerdy. So I was like, oh, right. you think I'm nerdy? I'm going to go Watch find this. the biggest, thickest book that's about Russians, and I'm about to read all these Russian novels, and I, I capped it with War and Peace, and I would walk around with War and Peace tucked under my arm <laughs> just to be that bitch. You know what I mean? Like, I was like a bitchy nerd. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to humiliate you all with my intellect, <laughs> you know, because it was weird because we were weird. Like, we were the only – West Indian people in that town. That's right. Montbello. Right? Like, it was a, it was a very, like, in, it was like an inner city suburb. It was very inner city yeah. in the terms of how the, how the people, you know, the kids interacted with one another. And then the economic status of most of the families was either middle class or lower middle class. Yeah. But it was a suburb. So it was kind of that weird dichotomy. It was, and it was also very African-American, right? There were like four yeah. African families, and we were one of the four. We counted as one of the four because our father was African. The other four was the Chirungas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm gonna, I used to know all of their names, but it was the Chirungas. It was the Akias. It was the Lomenas, and there was one other family that also had a lot of like high intellectual kids in it, right? And so we mm-hmm. were this odd family where education was like super – It was the OKKs. The OKKs. That was the other yep. one, the OKKs, right. So they, we were it. Everyone else were – African-American, basically from Texas, they had come up from Texas or from other parts of the South, but heavily Texan, which is why we all said y'all. And, you know, our cousins used to make fun of us when our cousins used to come and stay with us for the summer, and they would laugh at the fact that we said y'all. I still say y'all. It's like a tick that I still have because we talked like our friends, right? But also we had to speak perfect English because mom would get mad. (laughs) Right. So it was like a weird thing. So I, I would say on the June front, when they went, you know, it was also a, an upside down town. So meaning that it was a town, Montbello was a town built by segregation because as black families started to move from Five Points, which was the hood, into Montbello as they got a little money, white people did white flight. They did what they do all mm-hmm. over the country. And so black people like inherited this little town and the white people who didn't have money to do white flight ended up being the majority of the white people. So like, there was a point at which the lower middle class side where we started out when we first moved to Montbello is where all the white people were. And then when mm-hmm. mom got a, a, you know, an upgrade in her finances and she got a little more money and moved us to the more upper middle class side, that's where all the black people were. So that's it was right. the thing where we had more white friends as kids, June and I, when we were younger because we lived on the side where there were more lower middle class white people. And then when we moved to the other side where we went from Ford Elementary to McGlone Elementary, all of a sudden everybody was black and everybody with money was black. Everyone on our, you know, there was a judge on our block who was black. Across street was this retired military family with this big, beautiful home, you know. Like, so it was just a weird town. And so when the last gasp of that was that, you know, June was the last class in Montbello to be bus. So she gets bussed, and I just remember her coming home crying because they just treated them so poorly when they bussed them. The white yeah. kids who were experiencing these middle-class black kids treated them like crap. And so Denver Public Schools just made this decision to, like, box us in to Montbello. They built us a pool, a tennis court thing. We had a community center. And we got our own high school, and that was a combo middle school, high school. So June was the first class to go into that middle school, high school, Montbello Junior, Senior. And when I started, it was still like a double schedule. We had to go in the morning, and then the older kids went at night. They wouldn't mix us. So we were like it was a segregation town. 
and it was wild, you know, and we were navigating being in this weird segregated community where we were the oddballs, you know, June and I. And so we kind of just kind of lived like that. And you fit in more because you were younger. So you came up yeah. as more of an American kid, you know. You know, what's crazy, too, is, is that, like, the house that mom kept, you know, was was kind of opposite of that, right? Little United Colors Benetonish, right? You know, mom yeah. kept a, a cavalcade of friends, you know what I mean, from every walk of life. And so I, I know that I, you know, and we'll get into it, I got introduced to the different parts of your teen experience because obviously after mom passes and you go to, you go to high school in 80, I mean, you go to college in 86, you know, unbeknownst to me, you had to go and get another culture shock, which was Boston, you know what I mean? Yeah. In, in, in Massachusetts at Harvard and, and not understanding what, what that was like for you. I mean, obviously you take into account a, you know, a kid which is what you were, fresh off losing, you know, the only custodial parent that you've ever known, um, and then thrust into this high-stakes world of, you know, you know, college academics. Um, talk about what your time was in that culture shock, coming from, you know, Montbello, as you describe it, knowing, you know, mom did what she did in terms of just, she set the tone. She didn't do a lot of talking to us, I think, about, you know, what she thought socially, at least to me. I just saw it in how she lived her life. But what was yeah. it like and what was the culture shock, if any, once you got to Harvard? And and also well, just the fact that you were made it to Harvard on an academic scholarship. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. So mom uh, did talk a, more to me in June. Of, like, we kind of, I had a definite sense of what she thought politically. She was very political. Um, but you were just a little kid, so you wouldn't have gotten in those conversations. But, I mean, you know, it was interesting because our father was a Reaganite, very pro-Reagan, very Republican, and mom was very pro-Carter, very pro-Carter. I still remember June and myself crying when Carter lost <laughs> because mm -hmm. we were so pro-Carter. And dad was like, ha-ha, you know, he was so happy Reagan won. Um, and you know, mom used to, you know, really have a vehement attitude about racism because, you know, she and Auntie Bernice, who was our best friend, they'd gone to NYU together. They'd experienced, and I learned more about it later, you know, once I was, you know, playing with Auntie Bernice about just how much racism mom and, and Auntie Bernice experienced, but experienced in a weird way because they were both West Indian experiencing racism against African Americans and being in a position to intervene because they were foreign and had foreign accents. Sure. And mom would use her foreign accent against white racist people because I remember being stores etc where they would start with the attitude seeing her as a black person then she would start to speak and then that would disarm them and they'd say oh where is your beautiful accent from and it uh -huh. would change their attitude toward her and so she experienced that her whole life where people's attitude toward her was slightly different and so she would get this total window on racism almost like an outsider looking in on it because people would treat her slightly differently, but still racist, right? <laughs> so she really had like a real attitude about, she would say this thing about how everyone wants to be brown. This is one of her favorite complaints. They hate us. They think we're inferior to them, but they all want our lips. They want our mm -hmm. color. They want to lay out in the sunshine and get brown. They all want to be brown. That was one of her favorite complaints about how they just all want to be brown. They envy our music. They envy our culture. They want to be us, but they hate us. And that was a thing that really bothered her. So, you know, going into college, you know, I knew I had, you know, first of all, m mom was a diehard Democrat. 
Um, and like basically was made very clear. We were all going to be Democrats. We were not going to be our father's <laughs> ideology at all. And right. we were all going to vote. I mean, we, you were too young, but we went with her to vote, you know, and she was very much into it. I'm, and, you know, June probably told you this story that when Shirley Chisholm, who mom adored because she was Guyanese, she was half Guyanese. And so mom just thought she was everything. And when Shirley Chisholm, not long after running for president, came to Denver, did a whole tour around the country, and she came to Denver, and she took me and June to this event. And according to June, I was quite charming with Shirley Chisholm. So I, I say I, I just tell that story because I just need me myself to be associated with Shirley Chisholm. <laughs> you know? So, you know, so to answer your question, when I got to college, I had mom's full ideology with me. Mm. I had, you know, our father's, you know, deep sense of outrage about South Africa and about Palestinian and my own sort of developed outrage about Palestinians. And so those were the I, the things that I gravitated towards just myself politically at school. But I also was deeply depressed. You know, I mean, mom died like 22 days before I started at Harvard. And I, I, was, I, I couldn't really cope. And I was just a really bad, for the first time in my life, I failed almost all of my classes. Um, I spent a lot of time just laying in my bed crying, <laughs> you know, um, or, or for the first time in my life, really drinking, you know, a lot. Um, just because I was just trying to numb myself from just being really deeply depressed. And then when I couldn't take it anymore, I would get on a train and I would go to Brown and just hang out with June. Um, mm-hmm. Cause Brown was like a better environment. It was more warm. Harvard was literally like, you get there, they give you the suicide hotline and say, good luck. They just, right. It's not a warm place. It's, it's a place where they're like, bitch, you're at Harvard. You should be happy. <laughs> you should be happy you're here. You're about to be successful, you know? Um, right. What you get from us is you're the name Harvard, and <laughs> so you ain't getting nothing else. Don't ask for any like comforting or anything. That happened. There's no RAs. There's no like. There's just really nothing to support you. You just have to do it yourself. And so I had a really hard first year. I didn't make a ton of friends. Um, I was just kind of on my own, and it was really hard because mom really was my best friend. You know, yeah. we had a really close relationship. I was, you know really close to her. And, and, you know, I just didn't really know what to do. And the first thing that dropped was my, my desire to be a doctor. Cause I was, you know, that was my supposed thing. June was going to be the lawyer. I was going to be the doctor. And I got there and had no interest in medicine. I didn't believe in medicine as a thing because it failed our mom. And I just didn't want to go. I also felt like responsible for you. I was like, I really should be taking care of you, <laughs> you know? So I felt like I should be back in Denver taking care of you. And so I just was constantly worried about that. And, worried about you, worried about June, and I just didn't do much in terms of academics. So it didn't really work out for me at Harvard. And so I ended up leaving for a year and going and staying with Auntie Dolly uh, instead. And all our cousins thought I dropped out of Harvard and were really enraged <laughs> and not, I know. not speaking to me because uh, they thought I dropped out. I didn't drop out. I just took a year off because I just really was failing. It's crazy because, you know, Losing mom and <clears throat> meant something different to the three of us. You and I were together when that happened. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know, Moon was Moon was already off to Brown um, mm-hmm. and had to come back. And you know, I thought it always fused me to you in a in a different way. You know what I mean? Like we all have different relationships with our siblings, and I know that it, it fused me to you in a different way because <clears throat> that happening was so surreal you know i mean even now when i sit and talk about it, i can think about you know the uh, k panels being with us at the hospital and you know yeah. what i mean the things that and the fact that you had to turn from that 
and immediately jump back into the world, even if only in, you know, in, in showing up. Like, you had to show up to Harvard. You got this scholarship. You, you're enrolled in the classes. You know, um, life doesn't stop. You know what I mean? For me, I, I you know, being younger, obviously I was folded into another household. And, but you were thrown into the adult world in two really different ways. One, as a, well, cope as a human being with tragedy. And then two, as a person who had to, you know, navigate now, you know, Harvard or whatever came after. Um, and then when you mentioned, you know, dropping out, I remember when you left and we come from a Western family and I, I do remember it being, you know, a whispered point of contention with, with some of the family. Where was your mind at when you, when you did show up in Brooklyn at Aunt Dolly's and, and what were you, do you remember looking at the future as being? I mean, I just knew that I didn't want to be a doctor. That was not happening. <laughs> so, and I knew that I was, I was wasting the scholarship and I was going to get kicked out if I didn't drop out. I was on academic probation. I was failing my classes. You know, I had tried to do like a psychology major since I knew I didn't want to be straight pre-med, but I wasn't doing well in that. Then I was like, okay, maybe I'll do econ. I was not doing well in that. I just wasn't focused on school. And so my mindset was, I can't really do this. Um, and so mm -hmm. I need to leave. So, mm -hmm. you know, luckily, the closest person to our mom in the family was Auntie Dolly. And she was the one person who wasn't like attacking me for, for leaving school. So I went and stayed with her. And also, obviously, Auntie Bernice, who like called me and was like, you are coming to my house. I'm claiming you in the name of Jesus, because I'm your godmother. <laughs> and I don't care what you say. So she would call like every day. And she's like, so between those two ladies, they have they just had my back, and so my mindset really I need to think of something else to do, right? Mm -hmm. And then also just being thrown and you were into a different kind of household because you know we grew up in the Methodist church where we were just like you know an hour long sermon, and service then football. <laughs> So, I could crack jokes. I could crack jokes in the middle of the service. <laughs> oh my God! Can we just take a pause to do the Levy Scott story? Have we done? Have you done this on your podcast? So, I have not. For those of, yet. Okay, so for those of you who are listening to uh, Arangelo's podcast, this is the real or He was a cut up in church, right? So when we were really little kids, June and I and Mom were Catholic because our father was Catholic, and so Mom tried to fit into the Catholic Church, even though she was raised. Uh, Episcopalian. Um, mm -hmm. And so she tried to do the Catholic thing, you know, out of deference to the, the father, even though he was gone. And it didn't work because June and I found Catholic churches only interesting for one reason, the echo. And right. so when we would go, ah, 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 echo. And we were like, this is the most amazing thing, right? And we didn't understand what the pastor was saying, the pastor was saying, because it was in Latin. So we weren't interested. It was, and the other thing we would do is we'd crawl under the benches and to crawl away from mom. And then she couldn't beat us because we're in public. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she immediately was like, I'm going to solve this by going to the lowest the lowest ceiling church I can find, which was the United <laughs> Church of Monticello, which had low ceilings, and so there was no echoing possibility. So she got June and I under control that way, but not you. <laughs> not for the Oh, no, no, no. So we, the church was quiet and calm like mom liked. You know, it wasn't like a rowdy Baptist church, which she wasn't used to, because, you know, she's not American. She's not used to that. But one year, the, our, our little church was dwindling in membership, because it was boring, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it was a mixed race, you know, interesting, inter-non-denominational inter church, but it wasn't exciting. So they decided to make some money by leasing the church to a Baptist church that would come after us. And mm -hmm. Levy Scott somehow went to the wrong one and ended up in our church. And Levy decided to not 
go back to the Baptist church, but to stay and try to hype our church up. So he became the choir director. So Jude and I were in the choir, um, and it was fun in the choir thing because they, he was having us sing an up-tempo music. It was a lot more fun. But in the actual church services, he would act like he was in Baptist church. And the pastor <laughs> would say, you know, the Lord, the Lord wants you to be happy. He'd say, ha, ha, yes, sir. And everybody would look around like, well, and the Lord believes in you as a human being. Ha, ha, tell it, and he would do this throughout the freaking sermon. And everyone was like, what is this? What is he doing? And all the white people would have their hand over their chest like, this is crazy. What is happening right now? Hey, where's my good baby Jesus? Sweet baby Jesus. And it was, you know, like, you know it, was a, it was a mixed white black church, but everyone was very sedity and very quiet. And he would just, ha, 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 yes, I said it <laughs> So one day, little Oren, who you had to be like 10 or something, decided that you were going to join the Levy Scott and do it with him. And we're sitting, mom, then June, then me, then you, meaning you were far enough away from mom that she could hit you. <laughs> she couldn't hit, she could not hit she or pinch you. She couldn't slap you or pinch you. Because, you know, she would pinch you in the meat part of your, of your mm. right, if you do bad. It's just... <laughs> and so he starts going, ha, ha, and then we hear Or go, ha, ha. He says, yes, sir. He goes, yes, sir. He goes, oh, come on, Pastor, tell it. Tell it, tell it, and you're doing it with them, and that's the two of them. It's a man and a boy, both doing the thing throughout the service. It was horrifying, and then I started laughing, and then Mom pitches me. I'm like, I can do it. He's doing it. It's just like something making stop, and I'm like, I can't make it stop. It won't stop. It was the most hilarious thing. At the end of the whole thing, she couldn't beat you because again, it was in public, and we went out and the person. The person who laughed the most about it was Kay Panos. <laughs> Kay right. found it hysterical. She thought it was great, but Mom was so mad. But anyway, uh, I don't even remember what your question was. <laughs> well, you know what? It's, it's, it's perfect only because I really want people to understand what it took for you to get – I mean, the name of this is The Whole Hard Truth, Working Your Ass Off. I think that The Whole Hard Truth About Working Your Ass Off with Joy Ann Reed. And I think that – you know, you you can never do enough in 45 minutes to an hour, but yeah, I know what you've gone through to get to where you're at. And I'm hoping that, you know, <clears throat> that the same can be transmitted just from hearing it from, from you yourself. So you left Harvard, you yep. go to Brooklyn, you're, you're, you're with family. And then when did the, I believe it was NYU, when did, when did, when did the, the, the school switch come into play? Well, so I never switched. I ended up graduating from Harvard. So basically what happened was that's where we, that's where we got into the church story. So I, I ended up leaving Auntie Dolly's home uh, as I was staying with her for this year off. I lasted about half a year before I had to move out because at Auntie Dolly's house, church meant four <laughs> nights a week, young yep. people night, actual church, Bible study, and like another fourth night of church. It was like church every night. And it was church for two and a half, three hours. It was just too much. I couldn't deal with it. You know, and so I wound Cal up moving good old Calvary out. Temple. Good old Calvary, Calvary Temple in Brooklyn. Calvary Temple in Brooklyn. The pastor was a little seedy. He had some issues we won't go into, but it was, you know, it was a lot. And I just was, it was too much. So I wound up moving out. And also I was working. I took a job and I wound up just looking for temp jobs. And I wound up getting this job at Columbia Pictures. 
So I'm on this year off. I'm working as an administrative assistant at Columbia Pictures. Like, we had a Bill Cosby movie that year. All these celebrities. I remember one year, one day, George Michael was in an elevator with me. I was like, this is wild. Like, he's first of all, he's beautiful. And I was like, this is crazy because Columbia Records was in the same building as Columbia Pictures. We're mm-hmm. right on Fifth Avenue, down the street from the almost brand-new Trump Tower, which I walked into, which used to be a department store that Auntie Bernice used to work at. Um and so it's like and now it was converted into this gaudy, tacky-ass tower. Like, it was the tackiest shit ever. I would go in the, my lunch break and be like, there's like a gold fountain in here, and it's tacky. <laughs> right. So I'm doing this job, and sometimes I would, you know, it was wild. Like, I would come out right on Fifth Avenue. I would walk up and down the streets on Fifth Avenue with my Walkman on like I was in a music video. I would just walk mm-hmm. up and down. It was like so magical, you know, because, you know, I'd always worked. I had worked since I was 15. So mom trained me well to be an adult because, I, okay. you know, if I wanted glasses to get out of my Coke bottle glasses and get contact lenses, I had to get a job because mom didn't have the money. So I, I, I was either babysitting or working at the curiosity shop, which was the, um, the um, preschool daycare that was inside center. our church, our daycare center. Yep. yep. John, who, was, who became your brother. I used to watch him and all these other kids, LaParis, a badass LaParis. I don't know where he is now. Um, but, I mean, so I worked, you know. I had jobs. And so I was a working person. So I, I had no problem getting a job and working and making, having my own money because I had done that since I was 15. So I'm working, and Auntie Dolly didn't like the fact that I would work late. She was like, you have to be in my house by 8 o'clock every night, and I sometimes couldn't make it. And so I wound up saying, you know what, I love you, Auntie Dolly, but I'm going to move out. So I wound up getting this apartment in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, around the corner from Spike Lee's uh, Spike's Joint. So it was like Spike Lee was in the neighborhood. This was like Brooklyn Bohemian. This was the time when Spike, when all of these creatives were all over Fort Greene, and Fort Greene was still very black. It wasn't gentrified yet. The projects were one way. And I remember when I moved into this apartment, um, it was $450 a month. I was on the fourth floor of a walk-up brownstone. And the super was this retired cop, big white guy, who had this giant dog, which he bragged had a death grip. So he was like, if you ever get in trouble, you just call me, and my dog will come out and kill anyone who tries to bother <laughs> you. I mean, Good this guy know. was so – yeah. And so the guy, he, like, he one time to send a – the dog and he had to come up to my apartment because I had a big giant bug and I'm terrified of bugs. I've, I've always had bug phobia and I'd never seen a bug like this. It was these giant cockroaches that live in New York and he had to come and kill it with the dog. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's why so I'm living like between the project and Spike Lee. And it was just this amazing experience. Like it was on Washington Avenue and Washington Park is like the big like block in New York in in Brooklyn, but mm-hmm. um, Washington Avenue is this little street. And I was so broke most of the time that what I would do is I would order Domino's pizza because it was like if you if it's not there in thirty minutes it's free. And they right. never could find my apartment because they would go to Washington <laughs> Avenue instead of Washington Park and it would always be free. So I was doing stuff like that, eating ramen and cereal, like right. But I but I had my own place. I was making fifteen thousand six hundred a year. I had a job at Columbia Pictures. It was like this sort of magical kind of little life that I had. And when Mm -hmm. I went back to Harvard a year after doing that and being in the midst of all this creativity, I dropped my pre-med major and I switched my major to documentary film because I Mm -hmm. wanted to do like movie movies, but they didn't have that. The only choice they had in film was documentary. But the guy who, but right before me, Red Hudlin had graduated from the same program and he had just made House Party. So I had the example that if I did it right, right, I could twist this documentary degree into being like the next Spike Lee or the next Reggie Hudlin. And so Mm. that was my dream. And so I went in to become this filmmaker. And I came out of college 
this, and I'm like, now I need a crew. I have this film degree. I made my thesis film. I'm ready to go and be a Hollywood mogul, but I didn't have the money to move to L.A. I didn't have the money to live there for free and be an intern. I got an internship, but it was unpaid, so I couldn't afford to do it. I had nowhere to live. So I go to New York, and I'm like, I need a crew. So I took all these different jobs. I took one at a, a post house where they had, like, um, stock footage, right, and we would sell mm-hmm. stock footage. I did that for a while, and then I wound up taking a job at School of Visual Arts because I was like, I'll take a job here, even though it's $5.25 an hour minimum wage, so crazy. but I'll find a crew. Yeah, it's crazy. So I'm like, I got to find a, a, a place where I can find a crew. And that's where I met Jason, right? Jason was actually my, he was my employee because I was like the production office coordinator. And so all the students, the film students had to rent um, equipment from us. And that's how I met Jason because he took a job in there. And basically I was his supervisor. This was before the Me Too era. So it was perfectly legal. <laughs> pen, in the, yeah, yeah, pen in the company, Inc. was, it was a little more fashionable. <laughs> So we, I mean, and so the way I got into, I mean, if you're doing the story of how I ended up doing this, it's a weird circuitous route because we originally started out wanting to make films, but instead of making movies, we wound up making this reggae music video show. And so we made, we, they're all Jamaican American, you know, I'm Caribbean, but we're not Jamaican. I didn't even know about uh, reggae music until I got to New York and our cousin Nigel introduced me to it. And so he laughed every time we do it because the first song he ever played for me that was a reggae song goes, no one no go, no one no belly, licky licky, no one no go, no one no belly. And so, and I, I found this song so hysterically funny that he would just play it and I would start laughing. Right. And so this is all I knew about reggae. And now I meet all these Jamaican Americans and they're like, we got to do a reggae music video show because back then music videos were like a thing. And you could make a show because the music video content was free. I was a producer, so I would contact all of these um, music companies, record labels, and they would just send us the music videos and we could play them for free. There was no licensing required. So we were doing this reggae music video show and we were off track of making movies, but that's kind of how I started in media was working with Jason and our little crew. And because we were the only all black crew, it was like half a dozen black people, one black woman and a bunch of black guys in these black jackets. We made custom jackets and we would show up and like Mary J. Blige would be there and notice us or like the New York Knicks would be there and notice us or like acts we wanted to interview would notice us and we would get the interviews because they were like, you're the only black people. And so it was this amazing experience where we were backstage at all these incredible concerts. We had all this opportunity because we were the only all-black crew. And so we just got introduced into this world and thrown into it and had this hit show for like three years in New York. Competed with Ralph McDaniel's video music box, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. We did. So Ralph McDaniel's was like the top show. Then there was this other guy who was the last person to have ever interviewed Bob Marley and the three of us were competing back and forth. And one year we won this thing called the Tamika Reggae Award and beat that guy. Uh, oh, my God, I can't remember his name right now, but he was so angry that on his show the next day he would he barely acknowledged that we had won the award uh, for Best Reggae Music Video Show. But it was like this huge deal at the time. We were It was like the coolest thing that I think we've ever done. It was so much fun. It was, and we had a news segment in it. So we had uh, a woman named uh, Debbie Goodison. And Debbie, who um, later got a job with New York One, we would do a news segment because, of course, I'm a news junkie, right? And I'm like, we got to do use this show to inform, not just play music videos. So we created this news segment, and, and I was the primary driver of that. And we would do a news segment in the middle. So we would play all these cool music videos, and then there would be this segment where we give you the news. So mm-hmm. that was kind of my first news show. 
it's crazy too because that show, that crew, you know what I mean, uh, Ranger and and the boys like were kind of my introduction. You know, I used to come and and, and piggyback your New York experience, right? Because I'm, yeah. you know, during a lot of those years still in Denver, um, graduating high school and then stayed in Denver after that in college and would come out Christmases and summers. And, you know, I was the coolest kid coming back to Denver because I was the only kid who had some really New York ties. But it was yeah. your experiences in that world that kind of gave me this this, uh, this out, you know what I mean, this escape, you know what I mean, where I could sort of look in and peer through a different window. And I just remember that being like some of the – like Andre and, and all the cats. Like that was – those are some of the coolest times. Joe, like those are some of the yeah. coolest times I can remember, you know what I mean, like – leading into um, you guys moving down to Florida. So yeah, I, I, it was Jason that took a job with Discovery Channel that inspired the move, yes or no? Well, so basically what happened was we're doing this show, and we wound up in a, uh, syndicating it to Bermuda, believe it or not. We we have mm-hmm. pictures of Winsome's little chubby face. We would we Because we, we'd take mm. her on the set, right? We already had an un, un, unwedlock child. Out of wedlock child. Out of Jason. Sin, sin, And so we, you know, we'd fly her. She went all over the world with this show, all over the country with this show. Um, but we ended up syndicating it to Bermuda, and we sort of spread ourselves a little bit too thin, um, mm-hmm. trying to do too much, and it was sort of it kind of crashed out. You know, we kind of we 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 took it kind of as far as it could go, like for a local reggae music video show. And so at the end of the day, we ended up kind of curtailing it. You know, it was just out of control. And um, Andre, of who you mentioned, who was one of the main guys um, who was part of our crew, who was Jason's cousin, he wound up moving to Florida. And Jason went to visit him one one day, and, you know, at first he was very anti-moving to Florida. I was always like, let's move, let's move to Florida, it's nice and warm. And he was like, never. He went down and saw the kind of house you could buy, the kind of house Andre was able to get. I mean, he, and he was like, oh, we're totally moving. So we already had Winsome. Um, we already had, and, and I was pregnant again with a, a second child. And he was you like, are. we got to move to Florida. We, yeah, with Jamar, he was like, we got to move. Um, you know, we got to move to Florida. We can get a beautiful home. We can we can do this. And we had been looking for a home in New York, and at the time it was just so expensive. We just couldn't afford it, at least nothing nice with a yard and all of that stuff. And we were too dumb to buy a brownstone. We would be millionaires. <laughs> like, we were too dumb to buy a brownstone. Like, we would be gazillionaires right now. But we were too dumb. We didn't have the vision. Um, and so we wound up moving. But um, my stipulation was I ain't moving unless we get married <laughs> because I'm still West Indian in my core. I'm, I'm still my mother's daughter. And so we get married. So we ended up getting married uh, on February 27th and getting in a car and driving down to Florida on February 28th. <laughs> what? <laughs> literally did our honeymoon to drive to Florida. Yeah, it was like immediate. We we, we went down. Um, and so the boys were both born, end up being born in, in Florida because we, we ended up moving down there. And Jason got this job uh, first at a, a post-production house and he wound up getting a job at Discovery Latin America. So he always had like great jobs down there. And I had been working um, at this consulting firm in New York after the whole video dubplate experience. Beverage Marketing, and I could, right? Beverage Marketing Corporation. I was an analyst. I finally, got, I finally had a Harvard-type job, right, um, where I was analyzing the beverage industry, writing these 
phone book thick books about marketing analysis of Coca-Cola and stuff. You know, that's what I'm, I know everything about soft drinks, by the way, and beer because of it. Um, anything you want to know about the beer business and the soft drink business, I got you, right? Um, and so, but I couldn't keep doing that in Florida because my Spanish just isn't good enough to work in a consulting firm in Miami, which is very bilingual. I can speak Spanish, but not well enough to get a job. So I wound up having to get a job. You know, I needed to work. Um, and we wanted to be a two-income household because we could get a better house that way. And so I wound up taking a job um, for $7.25 an hour as a morning show writer at WSBN, which is the Fox affiliate in Miami. Um, and I, the way I got the job is I wrote them a letter, and the letter literally just had one sentence in it. No, I had two sentences in it. It said, hi, my name is Joanne Reed. I'm a really good writer. Will you hire me, please? <laughs> like a question mark. And they must take have thought note. it was take so note. Everybody charming. Everybody out there in, in, in uh, podcast land, take note. Sometimes it just takes asking for what you want. I just asked them, will you hire me, please? And I put the question mark at the end because I thought it would be funny. And I thought I had no shot at getting the job. So I was like, I'm just going to do it. Because there was this show that they had that uh, this woman named Belkis Naray used to host. It was like an entertainment show. And I thought right. they would hire me for that show because I thought it would, my, my, they would find my letter so comical they would put me on Belkis' show. But they wound up calling me but for the morning show. So I wound up getting this job, you know, not for the Belkis Naray entertainment show, but for this morning show. So I had to be at work every morning at 2 a.m., to start uh, writing and producing for the morning show that would start airing um, from 5 to 9 a.m. And so it was a really fascinating job. It was the first time I had iNews, which is this magical thing where all the news in the whole world is in front of you, which is like my childhood <laughs> dream come true. <laughs> like all the news and all the info available to me, you know. And uh, I used to write the I used to write the kickers. So I got to write like the funny little quippy segment at the end of the, of the show. Um, and it was, it was fascinating because I, you know, I met a lot of anchors, uh, a lot of, you know, people, and it was interesting how the range of involvement that the talent had, um, we had one guy who would, he he was, he was, he was from the front. He looked really conservative, this white guy. Mm -hmm. If you just looked at him straight on, he had this like typical white haircut, um, and a, and a suit and tie. But if you backed up and zoomed out and looked at what he really looked like, he had on Bermuda shorts, sandals <laughs> underneath, and a long ponytail in the back. And he would pull this ponytail back in a way that looked like he had a conservative haircut. But he was actually a hippie. And it was so wild that he pulled off this act where he looked so conservative, but he was so weird, right? I love the guy. He was the best one. And he would actually scrutinize our script and go through them and, like, critique everything we wrote, everything we did. Whereas other anchors would come in in their curlers and do their makeup and not even read our script and then screw them up on air. And so you saw this range of people who really deeply cared about the news and other people who just wanted to be anchor people and be beautiful on TV. And it was a, you know, it was a definite, it was a definite range, (laughs) you know, but that was my first experience in news. It's crazy too, because, you know, I think around, so I moved down there to be you and Jason in 2000. I was there mm-hmm. through nine eleven, and the whole time, like I remember, like when you started the blog, um, like this is like the two thousands were, you know, a long decade in, in certain regards, and for you, it just you packed so much into that decade from two thousand to two thousand and ten. I remember the the, uh, the wake up show. Um, you were doing uh, your own blog. You you went and worked 
in in campaign. I remember the stint that you had at Bird. You know, when you were writing copy. Remember when you when I went with you to the the Birdine, the Florida store. Yeah, um, the furniture like you, store. Yeah, you packed so much in. Like, where do you think you got the energy from? Looking back now. Like, well, did you a lot know of where was, you were going? Did you know where you were trying to take things? It's interesting because I kind of did. So, like, you know, when we were growing up to go back to our growing up days, you know, I used to watch Sunday shows. I used to watch, you know, Nightline. I used to watch all the different Sunday shows, including the Chris Matthews show, all these different things. And the one person I always said, if I was going to, like, pattern my career, it would be something like David Gergen. Weirdly enough, mm. he was kind of like the person that, you know, because there just weren't that many. First of all, there weren't many black women. There was literally Gwen Ifill and Carol Simpson. They were the only black women. So it was like kind of hard to, and I didn't want to be an anchor person. So I didn't really see myself ever doing those jobs. And I had technically <laughs> to be a doctor, which locks you in in the West Indian world, you know, but I was like, when I got to, to Florida, I was like, my plan, I, I had something of a plan, right? I had to take the bird on job because the morning show jobs didn't pay enough. Um, right. It only paid seven twenty five an hour, and so I needed a second job. So I wound up taking a job as a copywriter. So I would finish doing my show. Show would be over at not at, at like it, it ended at nine, but I would leave because we were technically done. I'd written all my stuff. I would leave like ten minutes early, get on the train, go to Birdines, and then do that job and do that mm-hmm. job from nine to five. So I really was working two jobs. Um, and so the Birdines thing, I remember once they they found that I got caught moonlighting, and because. Uh, I'm sitting in WSBN, and one of those giant bug roach bugs, because again, I'm terrified of bugs, ran across my desk. It was called the Plex. That was the building where it was this beautiful studio, but it was infested with bugs. I was so afraid to go to the bathroom by myself because these giant roaches that were in there. And one time, a giant one of the giant roaches ran across my desk. I jumped up, and where I was sitting, I was literally right behind the desk. Like you could see us sitting, because you know they want the newsroom look where you see people. But I sat strategically right behind <laughs> the anchor, so that as long as I'm sitting, the anchor's body blocked me. Well, this right. one time, I jump up and screamed and ran. And so my job at the dayside, the at Birdine saw me, and I got called into the office and accused of moonlighting. And I said, I hate to break it to you. But you're the moonlight job. <laughs> that's my right. main job. And you're the, and you're the that's moonlight. That's my main job. <laughs> Surprise. Are you cheating on me? Well, actually, <laughs> you're the side piece. You. You're the side piece. <laughs> you're the side piece. So I wound up doing that for a while until I got pregnant a third time <laughs> with the uh, well, young Miles. Yes. And then I just we just couldn't afford the daycare. It was going to be $1,200 a month for daycare, have three kids in daycare. It just didn't make sense. And the daycare experience was so traumatizing for me because, you know, Jamar used to cry like crazy when I would get leave him with the daycare mm-hmm. people. And he would just cry so, and he would make me cry. And it was like too much. So I, I was like, you know what, I'm not doing this with a third child. We, and I wound up leaving the Birdine job and getting and just for a while being a little bit unemployed, you know. <laughs> And so in the interim between the jobs is when I started doing the blog. I was, like, trying to be a writer. I started writing columns. My first one I sold to Salon. Um, Joan Walsh was the person who bought it, who's now a good friend of mine. And I, Crazy. I interesting enough, Steve, Steve Kornacki was actually my editor for a while at Salon. <laughs> really? He was much – yeah, he used to edit on my pieces uh, at Salon. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's a weird thing where we found all these different people, and I'm writing this blog that was all about politics. I'm like, I have this opportunity. I'm just going to do all of that. And so I wound up getting a job at WTVJ based on the very first blog I created, which was called The Amateur Pundit. 
And one of the executives at, at WTVJ, the NBC affiliate, happened to be one of my 300 readers. And he hired me to be a digital editor. So I'm, I get this digital editor job. So when you came down to Florida, I was now working at WTVJ as this digital editor. I had the amateur pundit on the side. And then um, I later did the read report on the side. But that's right. what I did. And I did that right up until the Iraq war broke out. And I, I, I was so against the Iraq war that I couldn't stay in news because I felt like the news media was cheerleading the war. So mm -hmm. I quit, you know, I quit and I took a job working for this thing called America Coming Together, which organized to try to beat George W. Bush for reelection. We failed. Then I was unemployed again, uh, and I lost my column at the Miami Herald, which I fought to get while I was at WTVJ despite their objections to it because my very first column was against the war. I almost got fired for it. So I ended up losing my column. I had no job again. And so I was like, you know what, I'll start another blog. I'll just write about politics on my own, and somehow it'll all work out. You know, and I remember writing this dream board up. This was in 2004. I was depressed. I was like, I can't believe I gave up my job to work on this campaign. We lost. But I wrote this dream board up, and I'm like, you know what? One of these days, I'm going to write a best-selling book. I'm going to be a commentator on the on Hardball. I'm going to get on, mm -hmm. on Hardball. I'm going to be on Meet the Press. I'm going to write columns again. And I put all this stuff on this dream board, most of which has actually happened. Because what wound That's up happening was, yeah, that the, the contacts that I made – at WTVJ, got me on the radio with James T., who became my mentor. Wake Up South Florida. Uh, Wake Up South Florida with James T., and then ultimately when he left, I became the host of that show. A co you know, I had co-hosts, but some crazy co-hosts, et cetera. But I ended up doing that, and then my connect, my, my, my reach on the radio, plus the fact that I'd worked on the 04 campaign, got me on the Obama campaign because my friends from 04 were working on the Obama-Florida effort, they wound up hiring me at the end because they just needed some help in the state doing communications. I got on that campaign. And then when we – and they needed my connections that I'd made as a radio personality. And then that when we won, you become like America's Most Wanted. All of a sudden, everyone wanted me as a pundit because we had won. Mm -hmm. And I had all this experience writing about politics. My blog had become really popular. Um, so I was like a known political voice in the state. Um, I was a sort of sought-after commentator. And I get hired back by NBC, but this time at the Grio, which is this black-facing um, news site inside MSNBC um, and NBC News. And then from there, I wound up getting being a guest, then a guest host, you know, on Melissa Harris Perry show on Hardball. Um, it just kind of took off from there, and that's yeah. how I wound up at MSNBC. It's 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 interesting because you know. When you were doing the um, the show with James T, um, Wake Up South Floor with James T, I was simultaneously doing sports. And we used to talk about, yep. you know, we're going to do a show together. We're going we're gonna to do a show together. And I was doing sports talk out here. And I just remember, and I want you to sort of take us through the day. You're out here in Denver, which you didn't make a lot of trips back here. You and June both have, yeah. have been sporadically back. Uh, we couldn't to, afford it. We were too broke. <laughs> we never could afford to go. No, there's seriously. A lot of, there's a we, lot of U.S. between New York or South Florida and Denver, and it, it all costs by the mind. And we, yeah, and it's hard to find babysitting for three kids. And I, I can remember being so depressed that I couldn't go to the Denver um, Democratic National Convention. I couldn't, not, we literally could not afford it. So it's wild mm -hmm. that, yeah, we never went back because we just couldn't afford to fly five people. <laughs> we couldn't afford five plane tickets. <laughs> Well, let me let me stop before I ask you about the call that you got because I remember the call. But what was it like working on the Obama campaign? And could you did you know at the time 
I mean, obviously, you know, black candidate, first, you know, potential black president in the United States. What inside, what, what did that feel like from the inside? What was that like? Oh, I knew he was going to win. Uh, first of all, I, you know, I remember saying on the radio, so he started running while I still doing Wake Up South Florida. Um, mm-hmm. James T was no longer on the show, but with the other uh, get, co-host that we had at one point, we had a crazy guy named Cos Carson. You might remember his name. He was truly insane. He was one of my co-hosts, and he was the he was my co-host during the run when Obama first started running. And mm-hmm. I, I remember saying on the radio, and really meant it, that George W. Bush had just been such a bad president, and the the Iraq War had been such a disaster, and the economy was now collapsing that whoever got the nomination in 2008 was going to win. Right. Mm. And I think I might have been wrong because I'm not so sure Hillary Clinton could have won because, I mean, American misogyny is something out of this world. But once Obama, Barack Obama got the nomination, I knew he was going to win because the momentum against George W. Bush meant that I think the country was going to turn to any Democrat. And secondly, he had a cool factor um, and a Hollywood, you know, just culturally cool factor about his campaign and about the idea of a black president, you know, I mean, the very first person I ever voted for for president was Jesse Jackson. That was my very first mm-hmm. vote back in 1988. And at the time, I felt the same thing about him, but it was not, the America wasn't ready to do that. And he was also a much more politically pr- progressive. I mean, he was basically Bernie Sanders. That's how right. far, you know, his, that's how far he wanted to make progress. Uh, and that's how much of a progressive he was, whereas Biden was a moderate he was just – and he had the least amount of rage and anger of any black man in America. They used to call – Todd Ozzie Coates called him the least angry black man in America. All of that <laughs> made it to me almost certain he would win. And I also knew that George – you know, I, toward the end, Kim McRae, who became my best friend when we worked on the 04 campaign, I remember us sitting and looking at each other at dinner a week before the 04 election and saying, we're going to lose. And I'm in, you know, I'm a press person, so my job is to say we're going to win. But I knew internally we were going to lose. But in mm-hmm. 08, I knew we were going to win. I could see it. I had never seen people line up like this. I'd never seen people from 100 years old who would sit in line for four hours to vote for Obama. People who never gave money to a political campaign, emptying out their, their you know, pillowcases and finding whatever money they could to donate. I had never seen anything like this phenomenon of Obama. So I knew we were going to win. And going back to my sort of David Gergen sort of calculations in 04, I figured I'd work on this campaign Suddenly, I would be able to push myself forward as like a pundit and as a political expert, and I could make that transition that like he made to CNN, that I could mm-hmm. do that. And it didn't happen for me in 04, except for internally in Florida, where I got kind of influence locally. But in 08, when you win a, when you are from a winning presidential campaign, that happens, you know? That's right. And I, but I had absolute confidence, absolute confidence in Barack Obama. I always knew he was going to be, as soon as he got the nomination, I knew he was going to win. What do you think mom would have said? Um, what do you think mom's thoughts would have been on the candidacy and the win? And, and all of it? Just a quick side. I think she would have been absolutely enthralled with Barack Obama because, you know, her attitudes toward politics really were much more like his. Remember, she's a Carter person, and people tend to look back and think of Carter as this liberal, but he wasn't. Jimmy Carter was a pretty conservative Democrat. You know, there used to be a movement of people who like Teddy Kennedy it used to be ABC, anybody but Carter. Carter was evangelical Christian, and he was a con- conservative evangelical Christian. And mom was also conservative Christian, right? And so yeah. I think she would like the idea of a sort of moderate-facing 
you know, uh, erect, socially and morally erect, young, impressive black man being president. I think that would have been her ideal. You know, I have no doubt she would have been an Obama person. Um, and I also think living in the world as a woman, I think she would have been highly skeptical that a woman could become president. You know, and it's it's almost in a weird way. I remember Michael Steele saying to me after the 08, I mean, after the 2012 election, after the re-election, he made a really good point. And he said, if you take the most racist white man in America and you say to that racist white man, would you like to play basketball with Michael Jordan? And he'd say, hell to the yes, of course I would. But if you ask that same white man, would you like your wife to be your boss? You see what I mean? That's the difference between yeah. voting for a woman and voting for a black man. There's there's a lot of racism you can put you can put aside in order to have the associated cool of blackness. And, right. and even people who are in the Trumpy right crave that associated cool because look at how they've reacted to Kanye West. They want exactly. that cultural cool. They just want it to be applied to conservative, pro-white male, pro-white Christian politics. And that's why these goofy rappers that, you know, show up at the Proud Boys events get cheers. That's why Diamond and Silk get views, because they want the association with blackness, but they want blackness to have no power. Right? So power-free yeah, association. So it's hmm? more so the, the, the nod that you can get without actually supporting the community that that not inherently uh, represents. And, the, and Obama, for Barack Obama was incredibly popular across the board, even with Republicans, right up until the moment he said that cop was wrong for arresting his friend, right? The minute he said the cop acted stupidly, a white cop acted stupidly for uh, arresting a black academic genius, you know, that's when he, the spell was broken. And they said, oh, you want power with your blackness. We just wanted your blackness without power. We wanted you to smile and wave as president and let the white men run everything. You just wave and smile and say America is the greatest country on earth, and you're good. But as soon as you try to exercise the powers of the presidency, that's a no-no. That's not for you. We just want you to symbolize how great and how modern and how evolved America is by existing. But when you try to exercise power, well, he got pushback. So, you know, the part about Obama wasn't winning the election because America wanted to feel that way about itself and wanted to feel like a good country. They just didn't want him or black people to have power. And you see that now. What the problem is is that black people don't want to just vote. We want to vote and have our preferences actually carry, <laughs> you <Sure>. know. <laughs> like uh, novel, novel concept. Novel concept. And so they want they – want they want the cultural benefit of us. They want jazz music. They want, but they also want to be able to steal rock and roll and say it's theirs. They just want us to set it up so they can knock it down. They can hold on, grab it, hold it. But it's when we say, but we also want to exercise power that, that we be problematic. You know, if Black Lives Matter was just marching and quoting Dr. King, but the goody parts of Dr. King, the parts they don't want to deal with, they don't want to deal with the rageful king and the king that says America might go to hell, they pretend that king doesn't exist. They want to right. quote one line of Dr. King's entire career. And if you just walk around and say that, you're fine. But the minute you say, no, 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 we want power, and we power. want police to behave toward our community with respect, and we want that enforced by law, that's when we become problematic. So, you know, the, this whole experience of being in news, and being it's interesting to see it from this point of view up, really up close to covering well, politics, but it's never changed. It's one of the things that I wanted to ask you because we can 
I don't want to skip through your biography. It's a very interesting path because then, you know, the 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 nod that you got to, to do the read report when I remember that call when it came through and, and that was just like for all of us, like you won for you won for a lot of people when you when you got that nod. And then the read report went the way that it did and then but then you got AM Joy and you've just been climbing this pantheon of of news. Um and, and you're 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 a trusted voice amongst an entire community. Do you see where initially it was like maybe kind of kitschy? Oh, you know, this is the the South Florida, the girl that you know, um, somewhat orphan, makes good, you know, Harvard graduate, uh, gets on MSNBC. Have you noticed from within um, a certain resentment or questioning as to whether or not you actually want power with your profile? Not from inside where I am. I mean, luckily, the good thing is, you know, it's like a long honeymoon of having this job because, you know, I think that there's been so much support from the public um, for me and it's very gratifying and a lot of people boosting me, you know, from the, the streets, you know what I mean? The streets were talking, you know, in terms of me getting opportunities I have. I mean, and also the people who pulled me up, you know, I mean, the Chris Matthews of the world, Chris did not have to make me his fill-in. He did. You know, Melissa Harris-Page did not have to make me her fill-in. She did. You know, from the Alex Wagners who used to let me fill in to, mm-hmm. you know, the Rachel Maddows who's let me fill in. That's like the, you know, most coveted seat, you know, in, in American media. And she's been like, you can fill in for me, which is a huge responsibility. Chris Hayes, same thing. Lawrence O'Donnell, same thing. You know, so all of my colleagues that have been just so even, I mean, even with Re- Re- Reverend Al being such a, a, a huge backer, you know what 100%. I mean? hundred like, percent. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you a funny uh, Reverend Al story. So Reverend Al, when I first moved back to New York, this was during the Central Park Five, uh, you know, use of Hawkins. Like, all of these horrible things were happening in New York when we moved back. You know, we were in Denver, sort of ensconced in this black community. I got to New York, and New York was – the HIV AIDS crisis, you would see these people walking down the street who just looked like the walking dead. No one was caring for the AIDS community. It was terrifying, actually. And you had that, you had the club, Kid World, the Studio E54 sort of aftermath in the 80s. Um, but you also had this civil unrest that was like palpable, right? So David Dinkins was, had just gotten in. He was sort of that moving into that era. And Reverend Al was just this legend, and I have always revered Reverend Al since the day I saw him in his tracksuit with his sideburns, and I was like, this is my guy. Like, he was the king for us. He was our Dr. King. And I never in a million years thought I would ever meet him. The one time I thought, I was like, this is my only chance to ever marry Al, I saw it in my head. Because he ran for mayor one year. I think he was either running for mayor. I want to say he was running for mayor. But he had an event at this place called the Brooklyn Tennis Club, and he shows, and, and I showed up a little bit late, and I missed the speech. I was so bummed. I'm walking in, and he's walking out because the speech was over, and he bumped my arm, and I bumped his arm, right? I blame myself because he's rubbing out, <laughs> you know? I bumped into him, and at the time, he was a heavier dude, you know what I mean? So it was a bump that I felt. You know? <laughs> I was You're like, oh, rubbing out. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't <laughs> right, I wasn't chunkums like I am now. I was skinny, and he was a big dude. And I was like, "Oh my God, my arm hurt!" But I was thinking to myself, "That's my one chance to meet Reverend Al." And I bump into him. I am an idiot, and I'm thinking, "I'm never going to meet this guy again." He's like an idol to me, and now he's like my big brother and good friend. <laughs> and he's been one of my biggest backers and supporters, and just a cool dude. He's funny. He's great. I mean, being around people like him, Bishop Barber. You know, just the just the incredible people I've been able to meet doing this job 
And even doing the radio job with James T, who introduced me to everybody in Miami and made my, like, life possible. You know, I'm just lucky. I'm very lucky. And you know this from being in the media, Orin. It's the people you meet that you cannot believe you're around them, right? And that that makes your life possible. And the fact that people are willing to reach out and not feel like there's only a space for one person, there's space for more of you, and they make room for you, it's everything. I'm going to be careful with this, but, you know, Chris Matthews is always going to be kind of one of those people for me where you're concerned because I, you could just tell in when you would come on his show, when you would be on Hardball, um, how much he respected your opinion. Um, and you guys are both Harvard alum, if I'm not mistaken, um, and how much he, you know, just enjoyed having you on. And, and so, you know, we'll do a bit of a fast forward. Everybody knows right now the readout is the hottest thing going. Um, to get that slot and to be a black woman in that slot, um, it means the world to a community. What is it? What did it mean to you to be able to pick up where he left off and sort of? Well, I mean, out? yeah, absolutely. I mean, Harbaugh was my favorite show. It was the very first show on MSNBC. I've been watching it from day one. I used to yell at the TV sometimes at Chris. I used to laugh with Chris and go ha with him. You know, ah. he's been like my MSNBC. You know, as a fan, and I'm an MSNBC fan first, right, which is wild to actually work there because I've just been a super fan of the network from the very beginning, and especially of Chris. And so Chris is my friend. You know, I, I, you know, was really sick about, you know, him having to leave at all because I I love the guy, you know, and he's a good person. And I think that's one of the most important things to – to to note is that he's a good guy, you know, um, and and he's you know he's always been very good to me, always been very respectful, and just always really like you said appreciated my opinion and made that very vocally known, which is the reason yeah. Phil Griffin knows who I am, right? Because he was like, "That is so smart!" Like he would like scream, "You're so smart!" You know, and that would make Phil Griffin pay attention to me. So you know, I it's really a privilege to be in that spot. It's to me like a sacred hour, you know, the the seven o'clock hour, because I watched it all the time. And and just for a black person to be in that space in prime time, I think it does mean a lot to the community. We needed to break up the white maleness of news. Rachel Maddow did that by becoming the hottest thing TV. Nicole Wallace is doing it. You know, you know, so many people have done. Melissa Harris Perry did it. Tamron Hall did it. You know, we need more of us. We need more faces of women, black people, LGBT people. We need more variety because we can't be like when I was growing up, it was mainly white guys telling me the world, telling me the news, telling me what was happening. We were Dan Rather people, so Dan Rather was telling me what's up. Ted Koppel was telling me what's up. We need more black and brown faces, more women saying what the world is. And so I'm proud to be one of the people that's doing that. Um, I love the job. We have such a great time uh, doing it. I love doing AM Joy as well. Um, it's just a different thing being in prime and being every night, you know, because you're hitting the news cycle every single night as things are happening. So it's a real privilege. I, and I don't take it lightly that, you know, as Gwen Eiffel and, you know, Carol Simpson were for me, I'm that for some kid, some young girl, some young nerd like me who's weird um, and who's unique and who just has something to say. So that's my goal is to just be there for those young girls and to let them know that this is absolutely possible. I mean, you've hit you've hit a lot of lists. This, I mean, <laughs> you two book you got two books published. Um, talk about that real quick, like the what it takes to author um, two very relevant two very relevant books, um, both which fracture and 
The Man Who Stole America, both of which, you know, have hit the time. Like, I don't know how many authors get an opportunity, I, I would imagine a lot, get an opportunity to write about the times in the times. Yeah. Um, so, know, what's I mean, that process like? It's a, it's a, it, it is brutal writing a book. It is really difficult. I got lucky, Fracture, um, you know, the first book that I did, um, I actually scored the same editor who edited Barack Obama's first book, which is pretty dope, you know. Uh, so I got a great, and he's been my editor ever since. Um, and it, so I have good editors, which help. Um, but it's a daunting process, um, writing a book, and it's hard, and you do a ton of work. And um, uh, it takes like a year of research writing, and I do write my own books, which, you know, not everyone, sometimes you get help, but, or you get like a ghostwriter. I do not have a ghostwriter. I just write. Um, I did write one third book, which was an edited book called We Are the Change We Seek with my friend Etienne um, about Barack Obama's speeches, which was much easier because I had a friend to do it with. <laughs> right. But the rest of these books, you know, it's work. And it's, it's, it's viewing history in real time as it's happening. But it's it's cool to have been able to do it. I'm very thankful, um, you know, that the man who sold America did hit the best New York Times bestseller because on my dream board. So it just shows you dream boards work. Make one. <laughs> That's what's up because, uh, like, watching you eclipse goal after goal that you set yourself, whether I intimately knew about them or not, has been a motivating factor for me. And I appreciate you know, that. Part of this part of this interview was was in hopes to to tell to tell the audience, like, you know, hard work is something that everybody espouses, and, and it's the, the number one trait of, you know, the American. Yeah. You work hard, and you, and you can accomplish your dreams. Absolutely. Could you have ever imagined it? You know, and it's come with, it hasn't come, you know, without its bumps. You know, you, you've, yeah. had to, you've had to, you know, overcome some obstacles in, in yeah. within the last 10 years, um, especially within the last four. You know, we don't have yeah. to get into it. Um, yeah. You know, that 2016 run, um, it definitely seemed like uh, it definitely seemed like something that that you you had to contend with all the while keeping your you know keeping your public face you know forward and, and giving us the news. Like, what would you if you were to encapsulate what your career has been and what hard work actually means to you? Um, how how would you put that in a, in a way that people could find encouragement from? I would say the main thing is it's not who you know, it's who knows you. That's what I tell my students, you know, when I'm teaching classes. It's that you need to develop relationships, not just interpersonal relationships and not network, meaning you really get to know people in the world, and those people will hold you down and have your back when it does get rough, when you do hit a rough patch, because people know you. They know who you are, whether it's your audience, whether it's your readers, whether it's your viewers, your listeners or your friends and colleagues, the people you work with, get really let people get to know you, really open yourself up to that because that in the end in the rough times is what's gonna is what's gonna carry you through. And just try to be as open and honest um with the world as you can and approach the world in an honest way. You can really I mean it is true that you can do anything not only that you are determined to do and that you're willing to work to do, but that which you create space for yourself to do by how to write relationships. So that's really what I always tell people is create the right relationships in your life uh, and then that will carry you to what you want. And also never give up on what you want. Don't think your dream is too outlandish or too crazy because if, you know, a nerdy, goofy kid from, you know, Brooklyn and Denver, Colorado can do it, anybody can do it. I mean, seriously, I was a mess. <laughs> I still <made> it. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, and on that and on that note, as we quote, I mean, I have mom uh, and dad to thank for creating a great relationship for me because I have you and June as uh, siblings, and you can't get rid of me. <laughs> exactly. We, we can't. We can't. Evict. You're like a tenant. We can't evict. <laughs> well, I love you, Arangelo. I got to tell you, like, you, you, you it's love. It's wonderful having a, a little brother that's this much younger than you because you. I always can like treat you like my baby, right? So you were like my <laughs> first actual baby before I came, and, and I could boss you around and make you do the dishes when you didn't want to, and I could make you do chores because when mom wasn't home, I was the boss. Because you was a that's right. <laughs> I still got a bone to pick with uh, with both of my nephews because they replaced me in that pantheon, baby. Exactly. Well, and, well, <laughs> and the last thing I'll say is I don't know if you remember this. You could do it on a future podcast. Remember when I made us all be vegetarians? That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> no burgers. No. <laughs> we're gonna do that. We're gonna do the tyranny of Joy Ann Reed uh, on another podcast. Separate podcast. It's a whole new podcast. <laughs> I, I love, love you. Love you more. Appreciate you, Lamangelo. You all know her as Joanne Reed. She's my Lamangelo. And that was tight. It's not every day that you get to sit and chop it up with a news star, let alone a news star that just so happens to be your sister. That was tight. I loved it. I know you did too. Once again, The Whole Hard Truth is brought to you by the DMVR Podcast Network. Search the DMVR Podcast Network. Search The Whole Hard Truth wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, it'll be there. Ain't going nowhere. And that's a great way to close out 2020. What a year, huh? Well, I got another episode that I loaded up because it's my birthday week and I do what I want to. So um, thank you for joining me on this episode. The next episode will be with my big, big sister. June Carroll will join me on the next episode of The Whole Heart Truth, which will be coming at you somewhere behind this episode right here. I appreciate y'all for joining me. Um, Stick around. There's more Lomena family reminiscing uh, coming up in the very near future. I mean, like the very near future, like the episode right behind this episode, like look through the scroll through the list and you'll see the episode right behind this episode. That that's how near that feature is. Appreciate y'all. Stay safe out there. Um, happy soon to be end of 2022. Everyone in the whole hard truth universe. Peace out.